All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, it is Monday, and I am Pastor Doug Minton, which means we're standing in the confessional corner. And this week, we're going to finish up Article 12 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession with a serious question here. Does God seek revenge? Is repentance really God seeking revenge against your sins, causing you to have to go through the discomfort of having to confess your sins like he is some maniacal sadist who wants to see you squirm and suffer before he gives you forgiveness. Does that sound like what Jesus taught? Does that sound like what the Bible says about repentance? Well, unfortunately, that is what the adversaries put forth in the confutation that Melanchthon finishes off in paragraphs 51 to 81 of the second half of Article 12 about this idea of revenge and punishment and their place in repentance, especially in paragraphs 51 and 52. The adversaries object that revenge or punishment is necessary for repentance because Augustine says that repentance is revenge punishing and so on. We grant that revenge or punishment is necessary in repentance, yet is not necessary as merit or price as the adversaries imagine that satisfactions are necessary. But revenge is in repentance formally, that is, because rebirth itself happens by a continuous putting to death of the oldness of life. The saying of Scotus may be very beautiful that penitence is so called because it is holding to punishment. But what punishment, what revenge does Augustine speak about? Certainly true punishment, true revenge, namely contrition, true terrors. Nor do we exclude the outward putting to death or mortification of the body which follows true grief of mind. The adversaries make a great mistake if they imagine that canonical satisfactions are more truly punishments than the true terrors in the heart. It is most foolish to twist the name of punishment to these dull satisfactions and not to refer people to those horrible terrors of conscience of which David says, the cords of death encompassed me, Psalm 18.4, and also 2 Samuel 22.5. Who would not rather, clad in metal armor and equipped, seek the church of James, the basilica of Peter, and so on, than bear that violence of grief that is beyond words and exist even in persons of ordinary lives, if there be true repentance. All right, so Rome has this word from Augustine in one of his works, and there are plenty of works of St. Augustine to say a whole lot of things which is one of the biggest problems the Reformers have with the confutation is that the papal theologians just cherry-pick whatever they want to find. It's kind of like Google searching back in the 16th century where you just look through a book until you find what you want to say, and that's what the whole book says. But in this, Rome objects that revenge and punishment are necessary for forgiveness to happen. But really, the true punishment, the true revenge does not come from God. It comes from inside. It is the terror of your conscience in contrition. That is the true revenge and punishment. What you put yourself through because of your sins. The mortification, the putting to death of the body 
that is there in grief. That line at the end of private confession absolution that says all of these things, and I desire to do better. I have done all these things. I don't want to do them. I desire to do better. That is contrition. That is the punishment, not from God and repentance, but from you, from yourself, from your conscience being pricked and contrite. That's the true punishment. That's the true revenge in repentance. We move on to paragraphs 53 to 57. They say that it belongs to God's justice to punish sins. He certainly punishes it in contrition when in these terrors he shows his wrath. Just as David shows when he prays, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, Psalm 6.1. In Jeremiah, correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing, in 10.24. Here, indeed, the most bitter punishments are spoken of. The adversaries admit that contrition can be so great that satisfaction is not required. Contrition is therefore more truly a punishment than a satisfaction. Besides, saints are subject to death in all general afflictions, as 1 Peter 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Although these afflictions are for the most part the punishments of sin, yet in the godly they have a better end, namely to exercise them, that they may learn amid trials to seek God's aid, to acknowledge the distrust of their own hearts, and so forth. As Paul says of himself, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 2 Corinthians 1.9 Isaiah says they poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them in chapter 26, verse 16. That is, afflictions are a discipline by which God exercises the saints. Likewise, afflictions are inflicted because of present sin, since in the saints they put to death and extinguish lustful desires, so that they may be renewed by the Spirit, as Paul says, the body is dead because of sin, Romans 8.10. The body is put to death, mortified, because of present sin that is still left in the flesh. Death itself serves this purpose, namely to abolish this flesh of sin, that we may rise absolutely new, 1 Corinthians 15.42. Since by faith the believer has overcome death's terrors, there is no longer in the believer's death that sting and sense of anger of which Paul says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, 1 Corinthians 15.56. This strength of sin, this sense of wrath, is truly a punishment as long as it is present. Without this sense of wrath, death is not properly a punishment. Furthermore, canonical satisfactions do not belong to these punishments. The adversaries wrongly say that by the power of the keys, a part of the punishments is forgiven. Likewise, according to these very men, the keys pardon satisfactions and the punishments because of which the satisfactions are made but it is clear that common troubles are not removed by the power of the keys. If the adversaries wish to be understood regarding these punishments, why do they add that satisfaction is to be accomplished in purgatory? Contrition is the greatest punishment and is seen as God's punishment in David's contrition over his sin with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. David was contrite in his repentance. And he was forgiven. He was absolved by Nathan the prophet. 
but it's that vexing of the contrition, the, those terrors of conscience when Nathan said, you are the man that brought about more punishment than even the child dying that was conceived by them. More than even David's own death is there, right there, in that moment when he realizes just how badly he had broken not just one commandment, but literally all ten commandments. David saw just what a state he was in. And that was more punishment than any satisfaction could ever provide. Is that stricken conscience that knows what's right and still does what's wrong. And the papal theologians want to make their piddly little satisfactions of saying five Our Fathers or three Hail Marys or do the rosary twice. That, yeah, that's as good as contrition or even better than contrition. And even if it isn't, okay, there's always purgatory. Well, we're not going to get back on the purgatory bandwagon again. We continue on. Paragraphs 58 and the first part of 59. They object to Adam's example and also to David's, who was punished in his adultery. From these examples, they get the universal rule that peculiar temporal punishments and the forgiveness of sins correspond to individual sins. It has been said before that the saints suffer punishments, which are God's works. They suffer contrition or terrors. They also suffer other common troubles. So, for example, some suffer punishments of their own that they have applied been applied by God, these punishments have nothing to do with the keys because the keys can neither apply nor pardon them. But God, without the ministry of the keys, applies and pardons them. Rome likes to use Adam's sin in the garden and David's sin with Bathsheba to say, see, there are certain punishments that go along with certain sins. So we need to create this menu of things that says, okay, if you have committed this sin, you need to do this satisfaction. That's exactly what they did. And people beat their heads on the walls trying to figure out how to get out from under the worst case of the satisfactions. Because then there are, yes, sometimes that God does punish strictly on the basis of the individual sin being committed. This is very prevalent for the sixth commandment and committing adultery and having sex outside of marriage and the spreading of sexually transmitted diseases. Okay, there you have a direct correspondence is that you only get this disease by having sex. And if you're not married and you have that disease, well, okay, you've broken the sixth commandment. And if you are married and, well, you had sex with somebody who is not your spouse— You've also broken the Sixth Commandment, and there's your punishment. Now, again, that works that way. You can also say capital punishment, the eye for eye, tooth for a tooth, life for life, is also in there. Is that, yes, if you have killed somebody, then yes, there is the proper recourse that your death is required as a life for a life. But that's not a universal rule. You can't backtrack every punishment, every bad thing that happens in your life back to a sin 
that you did, a particular one, not just that you were a sinner, but that a particular sin that you have done. You can't pinpoint the punishment to the crime, which is why we offer repentance and confession and absolution over and over and over again. Because, And we also offer general confession, like we do at the beginning of the divine service and all of the services of Lutheran service book, is that it is there for the general, for the general congregation, for general sins. It's like the Walmart's Sam's Choice version of confession. It's the generic because we're just saying, I'm a poor, miserable sinner who has sinned against God in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what I've left undone. We're not saying anything in particular, but we're still receiving forgiveness for all of our sins. But if we have a sin that strongly irks at us, that eats away at us, we also have private confession and absolution that gives that sin, that particular sin that bothers you, forgiveness. Not to point out what punishment came from that, but to forgive. That is the power of the keys, to forgive sins. That is the point of the gospel in the first place, not to impose further punishments. We move on through the rest of 59 and into paragraph 62. Neither does their universal rule follow. A peculiar punishment was put on David, 2 Samuel 12, 11 through 14. Therefore, in addition to common troubles, they say there is another punishment of purgatory in which each degree corresponds to each sin. Where does scripture teach that we cannot be freed from eternal death except by the payment of certain punishments in addition to common troubles? On the other hand, Scripture often teaches that the forgiveness of sins arises freely for Christ's sake, that Christ is the victor over sin and death, 1 Corinthians 15, 57. The merit of satisfaction is not to be patched over this. Although troubles still remain, Scripture interprets these as the putting to death of present sin and not as the payments of eternal death or as prices for eternal death. Job is excused, though he was not troubled by past evil deeds, in Job 2, 3 through 10. Therefore, troubles are not always punishments or signs of wrath. Indeed, terrified consciences should be taught that there are more important purposes for afflictions, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, so that they do not think God is rejecting them when they see nothing but God's punishment and anger and troubles. The other more important purposes are to be considered, that is, that God is doing his strange work so that he may be able to do his own work, as Isaiah 28 teaches in a long speech. When the disciples asked about the blind man who sinned, Christ replied that the cause of his blindness is not sin, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. John 9, 2 and 3. In Jeremiah, it is said, if those who did not deserve to drink the cup must drink it. In 49, 12. So the prophets, John the Baptist, and other saints are killed. Matthew 5, 11. Therefore, troubles are not always punishments for certain past deeds, but they are God's works, intended for our benefit, and that God's power might be made more apparent in our weakness. Melanchthon goes back to, yes, your troubles are not always punishments for sin. 
Sometimes troubles are there to exercise you, as was stated earlier. Sometimes they are there to help do God's alien work so that he may do his proper work. As 2 Corinthians 12.9, Paul begs three times for the thorn in his flesh to be removed. And Jesus says that in his weakness, Jesus is made perfect. In his weakness, in our weakness, Jesus is made perfect. Not perfect in the idea that he is not quite up there yet, but perfect in the fact of complete, of realized that you know we see our strength coming in those times of testing, those times of troubles, because the Lord is with us. For when I am weak, then I am strong, Paul says. And he continues this very same thought in 63 through 69. So Paul says God's strength is made perfect in weakness, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, once again. Because of God's will, our bodies should be sacrifices to declare our obedience and not to pay for eternal death. God has another price for that, the death of his own son. Gregory interprets David's punishment in this sense when he says, If God had threatened that David would be humbled this way by his son because of that sin, why did he fulfill that which he had threatened against him when the sin was forgiven? The reply is that this forgiveness was made so that man might not be hindered from receiving eternal life. The example of the threatening followed in order that the piety of humanity might be exercised and tested even in this humility. So because of sin, God inflicted upon humanity the death of the body. After the forgiveness of sins, he did not remove the affliction for the sake of exercising justice, namely so that the righteousness of those who were sanctified might be exercised and tested. All right, I'm going to stop here for a second. Gregory points out that Part of David's punishment came after his sins were forgiven. Yes, the child conceived by he and Bathsheba died on the seventh day so that he would not become part of the covenant people. But that wasn't the only punishment. The punishment would be that the sword would not leave his house, that there would always be trouble. So he's talking about Amnon and Tamar in chapter 13, Absalom in chapters 14 through 18. And Absalom taking over the kingdom, going in and raping his father's concubines. And maybe they did it willingly. I can't say for sure that it was rape. But he had sex with his father's concubines, as God had said. And God said, this is not done the same way because, yes, you did it in secret. You did it privately. But I'm going to have this done out in the open so that all Israel sees it. Why does God do it? To test David. And David is a man after God's own heart. So if he gets tested and he gets put up on a pedestal with that phrase, you know, that we have to look up to, where does that leave us when our troubles come? Where is our hope? Our hope is in the same place that David's hope was. Our hope is in God. We continue on, starting in paragraph 65. 
nor are common disasters, properly speaking, removed by these works of canonical satisfactions, that is, by these works of human traditions. The adversaries say that these satisfactions benefit by the outward work, ex operato, in such a way that even though they are done in mortal sin, they still deliver from the punishments. When the message of Paul is cited against us, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged by the Lord, 1 Corinthians 11.31, to judge be understood to, under, to include all of repentance and required fruit, not works that are not required. Our adversaries pay the penalty for hating grammar when they understand to judge to equal making a pilgrimage dressed in armor to the Church of St. James or similar works. To judge means all of repentance. It means to condemn sins. This condemnation truly happens in contrition and change of life. All of repentance, contrition, faith, and good fruit receives the reduction of public and private punishments and disasters as Isaiah 1, 16-19 teaches. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Neither should a most important and beneficial meaning be transferred from all of repentance and from works required or commanded by God to the satisfactions and works of human traditions. It is beneficial to teach the following. Common evils are reduced by our repentance and by the true fruit of repentance, by good works completed from faith, not, as these men imagine, completed in mortal sin. Here belongs the example of the Ninevites, Jonah 3.10, who by their repentance, all of repentance, were reconciled to God and received the favor that their city was not destroyed. All of repentance. Contrition, faith, and good fruit receives the reduction of public and private punishments and disasters. Not the removal, the reduction. Because there will still be punishments that we have even after the sin is forgiven, just like David. Continue on in paragraph 70. Furthermore, the mentioning of satisfaction by the fathers and the framing of canons by the councils was a matter of church discipline set up as an example, as we have said before. Nor do the councils hold that this discipline is necessary for the pardon either of the guilt or of the punishment. If some of them mention purgatory, they interpret it neither as payment for eternal punishment nor as satisfaction, but as purification of imperfect souls. Just as Augustine says that venial offenses are consumed, that is, distrust toward God and other similar tendencies are destroyed. Now and then the writers transferred the term satisfaction from the right itself or spectacle to illustrate true putting to death. So Augustine says, true satisfaction is to cut off the causes of sin, that is, to put the flesh to death, likewise to hold the flesh in check, not in order that eternal punishments may be paid for, but so that the flesh may not be drawn to sin. About repayment, Gregory says that repentance is false if it does not satisfy those whose property we have taken. For the person who steals does not truly grieve that he has stolen or robbed. He is a thief or robber as long as he is the unjust possessor of the property of another. This civil satisfaction is necessary because it is written, Let the thief no longer steal, Ephesians 4.28. Likewise, Chrysostom says, in the heart, contrition, in the mouth, confession, in the work, entire humility. This amounts to nothing against us. Good works should follow repentance. It should be repentance, not a show, a change of the entire life for the better. If you truly want to get rid of sin in your life, 
you must get rid of the causes. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, it is better to cut off body parts than to be wholly cast into hell. Matthew 5, 29 and 30, and then also in chapter 18, verse 9 of Matthew's Gospel. Cut off the causes of sin. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Whatever it is that causes you to sin, if you want to get rid of it yourself, you have to maim yourself. You have to mutilate yourself. And then you'll have to realize that it's not your hands, it's not your eyes, it's not your feet. It's your heart. And not until you have actually gotten down to where all you have left is just the beating of your heart that beats to nothing. And you still have sin. This is the problem. That is what you would need to do if you want to get rid of sin. But thanks be to God, he sent us Jesus to get rid of the sin for us by dying our death, rising to life so that he might open the gates of heaven for all of us who believe in him. And that is exactly what Chrysostom says in paragraph 73. In the heart, contrition, true terrors of the conscience in the heart. In the mouth, confession, confessing the sins, whether it is a general confession or it is a particular confession, either one confession should be made with the mouth. And then in the work, in what you do afterwards, entire humility, being humble, knowing that you deserve nothing of the forgiveness of your sins, but that God freely gives it to you through Christ. Good works follow repentance, but it begins with contrition in the heart and in the conscience that works into confession by the mouth and then humility in the works. We go on in paragraphs 74 through the end in paragraph 81. Likewise, the fathers wrote that it is enough if once in life this public or ceremonial penitence happens, for which the canons about satisfactions have been made. Clearly, they held that these canons are not necessary for the forgiveness of sins. In addition to this ceremonial penitence, they frequently want penitence to be done another way in which canons of satisfactions were not required. The composers of the confutation write that the setting aside of satisfactions, which are contrary to the plain gospel, is not to be tolerated. So far, we have shown that these canonical satisfactions, that is, unrequired works performed to pay for punishment, do not have the command of the gospel. The subject itself shows this. If works of satisfaction are works that are not required, why do they cite the plain gospel? For if the gospel would command that punishments be paid for by such works, the works would already be required. But they speak in this way in order to burden the inexperienced. And they cite testimonies that speak of required works, although they themselves in their own satisfaction prescribe works that are not required. Indeed, in their schools, they themselves admit that satisfactions can be refused without sin. Therefore, they write here falsely that we are compelled by the plain gospel to undertake these canonical satisfactions. We have already frequently testified that repentance should produce good fruit. 
These good fruit are what the commandments teach. Prayer, thanksgiving, the confession of the gospel, teaching the gospel, obeying parents and rulers, and being faithful to one's calling. We should not kill, not hold on to hatred, but we should be forgiving and give to the needy so far as we can according to our means. We should not commit sexual sins or adultery, but should hold in check, bridle, and chastise the flesh, not for repayment of eternal punishment, but so as not to obey the devil or offend the Holy Spirit. Likewise, we should speak the truth. These fruit have God's command and should be produced for the sake of God's glory and command. They have their rewards also. But Scripture does not teach that eternal punishments are only pardoned through the payment offered by certain traditions or by purgatory. Indulgences used to be pardoned for these public observances so that people should not be burdened excessively. But if, by human authority, satisfactions and punishments can be pardoned, this payment is not necessary by divine law. A divine law is not set aside by human authority. Further, since the custom is no longer used and the bishops ignore it in silence, these pardons are not necessary. Yet the word indulgences remained. Satisfactions were understood not referring to outward discipline, but referring to the payment of punishment. So indulgences were incorrectly understood to free souls from purgatory. But the keys have the power of binding and loosing only upon earth, not in purgatory. According to Matthew 16, 19, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. As we have said before, the keys do not have the power to impose penalties or to institute rites of worship, but only the command to forgive sins, John 20, 23, to those who are converted, and to convict and excommunicate, 1 Corinthians 5, those who are unwilling to be converted. For just as to loose means to forgive sins, so to bind means not to forgive sins. Christ speaks of a spiritual kingdom, and God's command is that ministers of the gospel should absolve those who are converted, according to 2 Corinthians 10, 8. Our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up. Therefore, the reservation of cases is a secular affair. It is a reservation of canonical punishment. It is not a reservation of guilt before God and those who are truly converted. The adversaries judge rightly when they confess that in the matter of death, the reservation of cases should not hinder absolution. We have presented all of our doctrine about repentance. We certainly know it is godly and beneficial to good minds. If good people will compare our doctrine with the very confused discussions of our adversaries, they will see that the adversaries have left out the doctrine about faith, justifying, and comforting godly hearts. They will also see that the adversaries invent many things about the merits of attrition, about the endless listing of offenses, and about satisfactions. They say things that agree neither with human law nor divine law, and which do not even themselves can't explain clearly enough. And apparently I can't read clearly enough either for that last sentence. But what is the good fruit? What is the end goal of repentance? The good fruit are what the commandments teach. Prayer, thanksgiving, confessing the gospel, teaching the gospel, obeying parents and rulers, being faithful to one's calling simply following the Ten Commandments. No, we're not going to be able to do it perfectly, but in faith we know that these things are good works and not for ourselves, not for trying to earn forgiveness, but good works are for our neighbors. And then he ends with the very great thing. The office of the keys cannot impose penalties upon the penitent. The power of the keys is the proclamation of the gospel. Yes, there is the binding key for those who are unrepentant. 
that no, your, your sins are not forgiven. The loosing is the forgiveness that is there. That is the focal point of the office of the keys, the loosing, the forgiveness of sins. All right, we've gone over a half hour now, uh, but we have covered the end of Apology Article 12b, seeing exactly what kind of revenge and punishment God has for us. And it's typically not as we consider revenge or punishment, is it? It's all about contrition. It's all about actually feeling sorrow for having committed the sins. And that is where the sweetness of the gospel swoops in, saying that your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All right, I am Pastor Doug Menton, thanking you for standing in the confessional corner with me this week. Come back next week as we look at articles 13 through 15 about what is a sacrament and how many are there because that's another bone of contention between the Reformers and the Roman Catholics. But until then, I ask you also to tune in on Thursdays for Digging Deeper as we keep going through the Psalms. Be here on Wednesdays for Pro Wrestling America, your favorite fantasy wrestling league on the internet. But until next time, I wish you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology. Amen.